My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And we're in blockbuster season, and that can only mean one thing, Mr. Tom Cruise. If you got movies like Tom Cruise in them, you can't lose. Now, Tom Cruise is a controversial subject. He has awful, awful beliefs, all stemming from Scientology. You know, of all the people that we've we've heard, you know, getting me to getting exposed... I think Tom Cruise, like, in terms of the things he's done in his life, like, he frankly belongs on the list. He's somebody who, if the reports of reputable journalists are to be believed, uses essentially slave labor. I've never heard that. Like, he's got members of the Sea Org cleaning his yacht, allegedly. You know, like, if you read Going Clear. The stuff that was reported in that book about, like, the church auditioning girlfriends for him and... uh, Yikes! like, Like, I don't know. Uh, but can we separate the art from the artist? Yes. Okay, so we're going to talk about Tom Cruise, the megastar. And I, but I would also like to bring his life into it maybe a little later, because I think it can help explain some of his recent career choices. Well, I think we should start right at the beginning, which is that Tom Cruise, as a child, and this is like at the beginning of his bio, and is the way that he would define himself in interviews, you know, grew up moving from town to town. Uh, His father abandoned him when he was very young. He had to take care of his mother. Mm. And that, I think, is very important on how he defined himself. Because what you get when you have someone who has to move and meet a whole bunch of new people is someone that needs to reinvent themselves every single time, where your only way that you can validate your existence is by being liked by other people. And for that to happen, you need to be able to modify yourself and kind of become someone new every time. Mm. And I think that all of his film roles have an echo of that in some form. I'm uh, quite astonished by the consistency of his performances. That's true. Yeah, but if you read like any interview with Tom Cruise or any of the people that worked with him, they're all about like, he has to get the specific. This needs to be perfect. Like, uh-huh. no one's going to buy him as a vampire Lestat. So he's going to make sure that it's perfect and that he's going to get every little thing right. Like the movie board on 4th of July. Like, he trained for ages how he could, like, get out of a wheelchair and get into a car. You know what gets me? His phoniness. He's so phony. Yes. He's a hollow shell. And yet, he's so magnetic. The thing about Tom Cruise is, he's not cool. No. And that's very important. Like, Chattering Fat is cool. Wesley Snipes is cool. The hamminess of Hugh Jackman, in some form, is cool. But Tom Cruise, he's not a cool guy. I, the other night, fell into a YouTube hole of watching him on David Letterman. And on every Letterman appearance, he talks about how he loves to go climbing, mm-hmm. how he loves to go biking. I couldn't find it, but I, I know in my heart I saw it. I, I was certain that I saw an interview where David Letterman said to him, oh, um, uh, in Japan, they declared a Tom Cruise day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would one do on Tom Cruise day? And I'm certain I saw Tom Cruise say, I don't know, hang out, go biking. <laughs> well, I, I think that the purest That's not cool. <laughs> form of Tom Cruise at his most like, is there nobody there? Is that Nerdist podcast oh, where yeah. he's interviewed during the junket 
of Edge of Tomorrow. Because, like, Tom Cruise is all about giving the image of Tom Cruise to all these talk shows, non-threatening. And in this, like, one-hour segment, it's just a conversation between him and, like, two people. And you feel him struggling to seem like a normal dude. Like, at one point he goes, yeah, you know, like, I have a cinema and I watch movies. And the interviewer goes, what kind of movies do you watch? And he's like, all kinds of movies, man. You should come down and watch movies. New movies, old movies. I saw a clip of him on Letterman where where Letterman facetiously said to him, do you you and your family go to the mall? Mm. And Tom Cruise went, yeah, we go to the mall sometimes. What do you do at the mall? Suri usually wants ice cream. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes we go to a toy store. So there's like every example of Tom Cruise as like a public figure is just like an action figure that has specific things, but no real personality there. Just that like smile that seems like a lie and crinkly eyes. Now the couch jumping moment really showed, I think, how... Uh, fragile his public image was. Well, because people didn't want to see anything that broke out of that. Well, we all knew that he was kind of phony, that he was too good to be true. But at the same time, like he actually was a heartthrob in the 90s. Mm. You know, I just revisited Jerry Maguire this week. He's so charming in that movie. Do you think he is? I do. I think he's like wildly charismatic, but also like there's something, there's something uncanny about him. There's Mm. something not quite right about him. And you know, the couch jumping was almost like confirmation. Yeah, there is something not quite right here. He He's not too good to be true. He, it's Yeah, he's unreal. So it's almost impossible to consider now how popular Jerry Maguire was when it came out on VHS. Well, yeah, that, that movie is all about the charisma of Tom Cruise. It's, it's like two and a half hours of just hanging out with Tom Cruise. Mm. And our, our relationship with him now is that everyone acknowledges his talent and like he's so great in the Mission Impossible movies, but also like you don't want to hang out with this guy. It's like, you know, don't show me how the meat is made. Like there's a <laughs> darkness there, but but give me the hamburger. But when you watch Jerry Maguire and it's like two hours and 18 minutes or something like that, Tom Cruise... As even a character in that movie, there's nothing there. Like, why is he doing the things that he wants to do? And in, I would say, the best book on Tom Cruise, just called Tom Cruise, released by Cage Cinema, written by Amy Nicholson, Nicholson actually questions that, being like, why why does Renee Zellweger want to be with Tom Cruise? Like, he's just kind of there. And the movie almost seems to acknowledge that when she leaves him going like, this is just not working. Like, you don't love me. You're only with me because you think you have to be. It's almost like Tom Cruise himself playing himself. Well, I don't love Jerry Maguire, but I think I like it a little more than you do because I was so totally sold on Tom Cruise. And I had a bit of an epiphany with Tom Cruise when Hmm. I saw Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, I love Edge of Tomorrow. So I went through, I think, a period of disenchantment with Tom Cruise, as many of us did. But I saw Edge of Tomorrow, I think, maybe a week or two after seeing Godzilla, the Mm -hmm. recent American one. And Aaron Taylor Johnson in Godzilla is a total non-entity. Tom Cruise is a star. But Tom Cruise in that movie is playing a charismatic phony who's a scumbag. Yes. And that's why it works so well. It's one of the rare film that acknowledges, oh no, this guy is really a loser. Like, he thinks he's charming, he's like, <laughs> he's doing all this stuff, but like, he's lame, and eventually he becomes the 
cool, I'm making air quotes here, Tom Cruise, but most of the movie, he's this phony. The last shot of Edge of Tomorrow, when he's staring into the camera, and then he looks down and starts laughing, and then it cuts to the credits, I thought, watching that, I love this guy. <laughs> yeah. He is, like, this guy is so charismatic. He is. He is, like, super charismatic. And even if you go back to something like Risky Business, which you watched. Yes. He's charismatic in that movie. Again, that's not about being cool. It's yeah. about, like, a guy that's in over his head who's trying to act cool. And by the way, all the things that make him such a weird and bad talk show guest mm-hmm. are the things that make him great on a 40-foot screen. Mm-hmm. That hyper-real quality. Yeah, I mean, famously, the uh, Christian Bale performance in American Psycho was inspired by Tom Cruise, you know. The thing about, like, Tom Cruise, again, is that when you see him in interviews, you want to see like a normal person. Mm -hmm. And because he's so polished and it's the same thing every time, that feels weird because it feels fake. He's playing a normal person. But in Risky Business, he's often playing characters who are trying to do something. And like right there, that struggle is what makes you empathetic and what makes him charismatic. Uh, By the way, I quite liked Risky Business. Um, and it was not the movie I thought it was going to be, by the no, way. No, you don't, because all you see is him sliding in and doing that stuff, and yeah. that's the movie you think it I is. I thought it was just going to be like a teen sex comedy. Oh, man, it's not. <laughs> I, I, Jesse Hawken mentioned to me on Twitter today that it's as if Michael Mann made a teen comedy. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason that that director made Risky Business, one other film, and hasn't done anything since. It has a Tangerine Dream score. Yeah, you didn't know that? No, I didn't. Oh, and it's an amazing score as yeah. well that like creates a mood that like you would never associate with a teenage sex comedy which is the way that it's advertised and the way that most people still remember it that way but i think like it adds to this to this mm. feeling that the movie evokes of like being yeah like an awkward teenager you know in over your head I- Tom Cruise is always at his best when that awkwardness is evident in his face. And that's how the Mission Impossible films have gotten good. I'll I'll get to that a little bit later. But I want to compare and contrast Tom Cruise in Risky Business as this awkward teen trying to figure stuff out with Tom Cruise in Top Gun, who is supposed to be the coolest motherfucker around and that's how the public perceives that movie and that movie is lame you know there was a time when i think the public did regard tom cruise as cool i guess it's difficult maybe because of the baggage that the rest of his career has but god like we were alive for mission impossible 2 that was a movie that was sold on the image of him hanging on the side of a mountain look how badass he is he did that all himself you know he had to lie to the studio until the rushes came in so i believe we lived in an era and it's hard to remember but i think we lived in an era when people genuinely thought he was cool well tom cruise is the movie star Like, it's Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, the two Toms. Yeah. Like, when you think of movies and people that are larger than life who can't really, like, become a character in some sense, you're thinking of Tom Cruise. Yeah. And I think that when we were kids, that's who he was in these movies. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's a Tom Cruise movie. Like, whatever it may be. Like, I think that the Mission Impossible films are the Tom Cruise movies that dominated my childhood mm-hmm. the most because I can't think of any other. I didn't watch Top Gun. And other than that, like, I didn't watch Risky uh, Business. I mean, what we knew him as was a guy on magazine covers. Yes. and Because, you know, from 1996 to 1999, there were no Tom Cruise movies. He was shooting Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, that's which took right. forever. So he was just sort of like a cultural signifier, mm-hmm. you know? And Top Gun is that cultural signifier. And, like, watching it now... 
I mean, I find it difficult to understand, like, what people like about it. Unless you go and, like, ah, man, it's very homoerotic and that's what I enjoy about it. But, like, it's not engaging in any way. It's not fun. It's not well shot. Like, this Tony... It is well shot. Come on. It's okay. Come on. I know, but I like my Tony Scott stylized to the point of, like, unreality. I want every shot to be like I'm on the um, edge of hell and it looks like (laughs) Earth is about to fall into an inferno, which is what Beverly Hills Cop 2 looks like. Top Gun? Not so much. Well, Top Gun looks like a a Ronald Reagan campaign ad. Yes. And it looks great. It looks like the best looking Ronald Reagan campaign ad ever, but yeah. The crazy thing about Top Gun is that it has no stakes. It's like Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer as two hotshots just button heads at some war games? It's like, who cares? Yeah, on (laughs) on the fucking taxpayer's dime. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're wasting time. And then, you know, when they're not up in the sky, this little four foot nine alpha is courting Kelly McGillis. Mm -hmm. And who cares about that? And Tom Cruise... Okay, I, I hate this movie. Yes. I really don't like it at all. I don't like the vibe of it. Uh, I mean, people have tried to argue to me, like, oh, man, don't the, like, uh, flying scenes look cool? Like, they shot them all for real. No, the flying scenes have no geography. You have no idea what's going on. It's like, I'd rather they have used miniatures. Yeah, and I don't like any of these characters. No. I, it's a movie about how Tom Cruise is a cool guy who has some doubts. But don't worry, he realizes he's a cool guy again in this little uh, fiefdom that he has that really doesn't matter that much. And it's a film that is perfect for the 80s. And Tom Cruise is so lame. He's so lame. In All of movie. his worst tendencies are in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, you know, most really popular movies I can understand Yeah, why they're popular. I don't get this. I mean, I can understand why it's popular. It's about the army. It uh-huh. looks like a commercial. It's about planes, like the cockpit. Like, look yeah. how manly I am yeah. to the point of yeah. homoeroticism. It just Danger like, Zone. Yeah, I mean, Danger Zone plays ten times. Yeah, great song. Love to hear it. Or that Harold Faltermeyer theme song too. Yeah. So, if someone wants to consider this movie like a great film, like without viewing with any irony or satire, I can understand that. But that means that, like, movies are just an idea for them. Like, they don't have to deliver on anything. Fuck, I saw Top Gun when I was a kid. Bored as hell. Me too. Yeah. Like, I didn't get it. Like, yeah. uh, I, I mean, friends have told me since then, like, oh, but the playing scenes are good. Then I watched them and I went, nope, playing scenes is still lame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is the, a perfect illustration of why he's not cool. No, You're yeah. making Top Gun 2 right now. Yeah. And what's hilarious is that, like, Tom Cruise for decades said, I don't want to make Top Gun 2. Top Gun ended up being an advertisement for the Air Force and the Army. Mm -hmm. And Tom Cruise was like, I want to get away from that. I want to be like a real actor. (laughs) And so he ended up doing stuff like The Color of Money with Martin Scorsese and Paul Newman. He did Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. I got to say, Color of Money is one of my favorite Tom Cruise performances. Because again, it's the perfect character for him. Mm -hmm. He's this young, cocky hotshot that Paul Newman goes... When people are going to see you, they're going to want to take you down a peg. And that's to your advantage. You know, one movie that I should have watched for this podcast was Cocktail. Oh, yes. I mean, speaking of like Tom Cruise. I've actually never seen Cocktail. Neither have I. I mean, there's just no reason for me to. (laughs) Like, did Cocktail come after Top Gun? I believe it did. Yeah. So it's like all the worst tendencies of those movies. And I haven't seen seen Days of Thunder either. Oh, I've seen Days of Thunder. It's... 
I kid you not, the lamer version of Top Gun. <laughs> uh, Nicole Kidman plays a neurosurgeon, and I believe at the time she was 21 years old. Mm. But it does have John C. Riley in it, in oh. one of his straight uh, man roles as Tom Cruise's um, sidekick. You know, mentioning Nicole Kidman, I think that was actually very key to why he was able to maintain this... Uh, you know, why his fragile public image was able to stay as long as it did, because he had this marriage, mm-hmm. which was considered like... Oh, know, he's a normal dude. Yeah, and, he, and it's Hollywood's reigning marriage, you mm-hmm. know, they're the king and queen of Hollywood. But, I mean, you can't fault for Tom Cruise, like, wanting to be, like, a real actor, whether it be the physical performance that he gives in Board on the Fourth of July, a movie that I said that we're going to watch for this podcast, and that I did... Will couldn't make it through it. I'm sorry. I I apologize to all the important Cinema Club listeners. I watched 90 minutes of Born on the Fourth of July. I had just watched Top Gun. Yes. And I was worn out on Tom Cruise movies I didn't like. Mm-hmm. So after 90 minutes of Born on the Fourth of July, which is kind of like, you know, if you were watching a movie and the people in the movie go see a Vietnam War movie, mm-hmm. that would be the movie that's playing. Do you, you think so? Because, yes. like, I like Born on the Fourth of July a lot, and I like it for the reasons that people have, like, damned it. I've seen, like, reviews where they go, uh, I, the thing I liked about the movie isn't Oliver Stone's direction and his histrionics, it's really the cinematography by... Uh, the guy who went on to work with Quentin Tarantino and stuff like that. And the things that I like about Force of July is Tom Cruise's insane performance, because if you watch it from beginning to end, it is literally a guy, like, giving you an insane acting class (laughs) in how you can take a character to a certain extreme, because the film starts as, like, Tom Cruise, this cocky young kid, still unsure of himself, though. Mm. Like, he wants to be cool, but he's not really cool. He still has moments of victory. And then as it evolves, he goes through all this misery. It's just like this torture show until he ends up like this broken man in the suburbia trying to continue a normal life and he just can't do it. Has a big beard at the end, his hair thinning his hair down to his shoulders. And then it's mixed in with Oliver Stone coked up to the gills shooting the film like uh, he's Sam Raimi doing like Quick and the Dead, which is insane. (laughs) And all of those things together is something that I just love kind of selling me on it but i don't particularly like oliver stone i don't like his boomer you know yeah you you mentioned to me that the one thing that like really made you go i can't do it were the big chill like uh needle drops (laughs) even though that in the movie they are used in a very ironic way but you just couldn't get through that right you're like no i'm i'm sorry i'm just so ashamed (laughs) it is end to end I was listening to it and I'm like man this soundtrack must have sold like crazy because it's like it's the Forrest Gump soundtrack <laughs> exactly that's what it is but it is portrayed over an image of like Tom Cruise in like an an iron lung type machine being mm-hmm. like I'm gonna lose my legs and American Pie is playing over that yeah I don't know it's just such a like kind of like Time Magazine version of Vietnam I don't know I, I'm just so tired of hearing about, tired of hearing about Vietnam yeah and Oliver Stone there's baggage there yeah. that like you can't deal it's okay Will it's okay I watched it Thank I watched it you. but you did watch some other movies I watched uh, Jerry Maguire yes which is show me the money <laughs> You had me at hello, you <laughs> yep, know? that's right. This is two and a half hours long, and I, Ugh, you f- yeah. I, you know, really was not into starting to watch it. But then I just enjoyed spending two and a half hours with Tom, you know? Like, he is at his most charismatic. He is. And I think that he's really fun to watch in this movie. But again, I go back to what Amy Nicholson said, which is, I'm like, but who is this person? Like, that epiphany that he has, where he's mm-hmm. like, oh, I should be a good person. I should do good things. 
is kind of a hollow one mm-hmm. based on almost nothing that he tries to retract instantly. I think I was compelled by the chemistry between him and Renee Zellweger. But they shouldn't get back together! Like, it's gonna fall apart two years from there! You're right, but you know, Renee Zellweger in this movie, I think, has a sweetness and mm-hmm. has a, a naturalness she in does. her performance that contrasts interestingly with Tom Cruise. When, like, Tom Cruise walks into the room at the end and starts giving a speech to her, he spends most of it on the other side of the room. Yeah. As if he can't, like, connect with her, but he knows, you know, the emotions he has to go through because he saw Cuba Gooding Jr. be so happy and he's like, why can't I have this? I need to try a little harder. But there's, I never, like, bought into that connection between them and i'm 100 percent sure that's not what cameron crow intended he's like a sentimentalist like this is what he likes even though that the entire time he's like oh this is the 90s version of billy wilder's the apartment i think i bought the connection because you know you, you say you like uh tom cruise when he's this cocky arrogant asshole who gets humbled i mean uh, not necessarily humbled but i know what you mean yeah yes. yeah i mean th- th- like this movie's kind of all about that yes, and you get it, to see tom cruise do the whole spate of emotions yes uh, <laughs> As you, you know, you get... A little bit of Nicolas Cage-isms as well, well, when he's like, you think I'm going to freak out? Oh, I loved that. <laughs> yeah. I loved that. Uh, but also, like, any time that he yells, mm-hmm. you know, any any anytime he does that thing, when he's yelling at Cuba Jr., it's a really unnatural yell. But, like, know? yeah, Tom Cruise is, like, in this movie as Jerry Maguire, trying to force himself when he's trying to be charismatic, or when he, like, shakes somebody's hand, he shakes the hand a little too long, yeah. holds on, like, a little too long. So like, that's what's funny about yeah, it. Yeah, so I liked... You know, I think this movie uses Tom Cruise's movie star charisma and his unnatural, uncanny quality mm-hmm. to its advantage. And I think it, it does a very good job in putting him with these two other actors, Renee Zellweger and Cuba Gooding Jr., who are much more natural than mm-hmm. he is. <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. natural? Ham-flavored natural. It's... He's more natural than Tom Cruise. I, like, I, I Oscars don't, don't lie, Justin. <laughs> yeah, Oscars don't lie. Like, I, like I don't know. There's something of I buy him yes. as a person more than I buy. Yeah, he's like very funny and charming. But the thing about Tom Cruise in something like Jerry Maguire is that those people do exist. Yeah, like you've probably guess. met them, and that's why Tom Cruise is perfect for that role. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Am I selling you on this movie? I, I mean, I, I like Jerry Maguire. I just don't love it, and okay. I think it's only because this is me butting heads with Cameron Crowe intentions i think jerry Maguire would be impossible today by the way like mm-hmm. we have too much baggage with tom cruise that we would not be able to accept him no yeah anymore i mean personally my favorite tom cruise performance is tom cruise in magnolia mm-hmm. and i think that that is like the distillation of everything we've talked about this guy who struggled as a young kid and had to define himself in a different way in this particular case of Magnolia as a very hateful and dominating person mm. who at the end of the movie does get like a breakdown that's not forgiveness, but a breakdown kind of stuck in like, why did you do this to me? And that's like Tom Cruise. I feel that he's been at his most real in a way that he hasn't been able to replicate since then. How do you like him in Eyes Wide Shut? Uh... He's fine. I mean, he's doing what Stanley Kubrick wants him to do. Yeah, there's. it's a strange performance, I think. Well, he's a nothing in that movie, yeah, right? Yeah, affectless, yeah. And, and what Tom Cruise is trying to do in that movie and what his motivation is, is that he has everything and then he realizes but there's more that I don't have mm-hmm. and I want this thing. Like, that's what the whole movie's about. And because of that, it's like, who is this person? And I, he brings the Tom Cruise baggage with him as well. Mm-hmm. And it is weird to see, like, a guy who's not doing the Tom Cruise-isms. Like, 
it's Stan- it's almost Brissonian. Yeah, I mean Stanley Kubrick. He did do the Brissonian thing, right? Like forty eight takes until like all of it is gone. Yeah, but I don't like watching it. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut's a movie that I have some problems with. Yeah, I mean it's an incredibly specific film. There's mm-hmm. nothing else like it. I don't know. One of these days we'll talk about it. You know, Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut are kind of like the stepping stones that brought Tom Cruise to the place that we know him today, which is the actor who doesn't really want to act. Like, he doesn't want to be known as a dramatic Oscar-winning actor anymore. So there's a, a, a section of that Amy Nicholson book, which I think was circulated online, where she talks about the couch-jumping incident, and mm-hmm. she she points to that as, and I, and I believe she's accurate to point to it, as the turning point in his career. Mm-hmm. When after that, he panicked, and he no longer did the sort of interesting movies he was doing before that, like Collateral or even Vanilla Sky, mm-hmm. which is at least an attempt at something. Yeah. Uh, he, he, his career became much more conservative. And, but it became a career that is easily definable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it did, it did become definable. He started making, he became after that, I think his own franchise sort yes. of like, it's hard to imagine Tom Cruise showing up in like a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. He's a, He's a, a law unto himself doing his own kinds of movies. And like the way that he talks about like the stunts that he does, that he does them all himself now, instead of doing like dramatic acting and learning chops and playing characters, he just wants to be able to do stuff that's more awesome. And that's how there's value there. Like, oh my God, can you believe Tom Cruise did this? Now, Amy Nicholson laments this turn in his career. And she, I believe in the chapter, blames the audience. Mm-hmm. She said... I think her, in fact, her quote is, we gave up all that for a giggle. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, because we, uh, us unappreciative audiences, you know, wanted to laugh at him on jumping on a couch. Then he panicked and he took away from us all these interesting things he was doing. And but I think that's unfair. I think that takes away from Tom Cruise doing what he wants to do, which is mm-hmm. entertain people. And that's saying like, oh, well, this action movie has less value than this dramatic film. Yeah. And I think that is very flawed thinking and it's very... Um, snobby, maybe? Snobby, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I also think, like, it's not my fault that he's not making Magnolia anymore. No, yeah. I, he it, did so many of those, though. And, and you like, know, if he made Magnolia again, I'd go see it. It's like, not my fault. Like, maybe Tom Cruise yeah. woke up and he went, I'm not going to be young yeah. forever. Like, I should do yeah. this shit before I can. And I'm sorry, it's unreasonable like to chide me for laughing at Tom Cruise jumping on a couch. Yes, I mean it's goofy. Yeah, like like it, come it, on. what do you think the reaction is going to be? But I also think maybe an underexplored reason for his career change is Scientology. Mm-hmm. Okay? So after 2000, the church took a more active role in his life. I think this is well documented. And you know, there's a passage in the Going Clear book when it talks about Tom Cruise and David Miscavige went to see Million Dollar Baby, and they really didn't like it because they, they felt it was negative. Like, it's against their beliefs as Scientologists, the, yeah. the whole ending of that. I don't think that can be discounted in his choice of roles. Now, like, Tom Cruise's turn towards Scientology was influenced by Mimi Rogers. His what? first wife, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his first wife. And I, I almost feel like that first thesis that I said at the beginning is, like, the cause for the acceptance of Scientology, which is, like, Tom Cruise wants to be liked. So when he's in Scientology, he wants to be liked by the Scientologists. And by extension, he wants to bring people into that, even though it has tons of toxic thoughts behind it. But also, he's not exactly a prisoner of the church. He's a high-ranking Scientologist. Do you think that he is... I mean, I don't want to, like, give Tom Cruise a pass in the way that he's acted because, like, he said some pretty noxious stuff. Amy Nicholson points out that after that couch 
jumping gag. He went on a talk show and was like, oh, well, this actor, you know, she shouldn't. Oh, yeah, need- yeah. I remember with this when it happened. The postpartum depression isn't a real thing. Yeah, yeah. she shouldn't take uh, medication. And that like kind of added to the couch jumping thing yes. that it was those things together that kind of like created a perfect storm for people to be like, oh, good. Tom Cruise is gross. Yes. But also, and, and I hate to bring this up because I don't normally like to bring up these like salacious personal details, but I think it may be instructive in explaining some of his recent career choices. The situation with Katie Holmes and mm. Siri, who he hasn't seen his daughter in five years or something. Yeah. That's That's been pretty well documented. I mean, think what that does to a person. If you want to be liked and you want to appear happy and doing good stuff, big blockbusters are the easiest way to do that. Well, isn't it interesting that like in the last 10 years he has suddenly become the stunt master mm-hmm. in like in his 50s. He was always like I do my own stunts, but it was built into the training he would do for a movie. Like on Minority Report, uh, Steven Spielberg went, oh, I couldn't believe it. We put him underwater and he could just let mm-hmm. the bubbles out of his nose. Mm-hmm. And then like Tom Cruise almost seems to have like jumped on that mm-hmm. on how people like that stuff. So he's like, if I just did a bunch of that, mm-hmm. then people will really love me. Well, he's obviously worried about his relevance. Yeah. He's in his 50s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he's not going to be like cut and perfect. Forever. But but he's obviously, like, very vain. He yes. loves taking his shirt off. He loves... Like, in fucking The Mummy, mm. there's a point in that movie yeah. when Russell Crowe... And they CG'd him yeah. over, though! Russell Crowe says to him, you have uh, the advantage of youth on your side. Tom Cruise is older than Russell Crowe. <laughs> okay? I looked it up. So so there's that. Yeah. Also, you know, in Scientology, all this stuff about going clear, getting mm-hmm. all the all the, you know, evil toxins out of your body or yeah. whatever bullshit they believe. You know, like he clearly also wants to be the perfect man, mm-hmm. right? He he like he this is also at the root of this like stunt master stuff. Yeah, he wants to be physically the body. Perfect. I can like conquer yeah. anything. I'm perfect in mind and body and career yeah. and everything. All it takes is drive, mm-hmm. nothing else. But also in the last two Mission Impossible movies, when he's talking about, like, I'm risking death, I'm risking death. I held my breath underwater for seven minutes. This is a man who hates himself. Yes. This is a man who hasn't seen his daughter in five years. There's, he... there's suicidal ideation here, I believe. You think so? Yeah, I think so. I mean... <sighs> Sorry if this is, like, getting a little, like, too much, but I don't know. But do you see that in Jackie Chan as well? That there's, like, a distaste there that he wants to do those things? Uh, I'm not sure what to make of Jackie Chan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's a different case, frankly, because he's not a Scientologist. Because I almost feel that it's just like Tom Cruise, again, I keep saying this, like, wanting people to like him. Mm-hmm. And he realized that giving, like, a great committed performance just isn't enough. That he actually has to do something that is quantifiable like i'm jumping across buildings or like i'm hanging on the side of a plane well to look at tom cruise more positively than i've been painting him yeah he cares about the audience Mm -hmm. he cares about the product he puts out like there is you know there are tom cruise movies i like more than others but there is a considerable quality control on his films and everybody that's worked with tom cruise actors technicians Mm. in the last few years have said he's a super nice guy who's really into it and this is the first time as well in the last decade that tom cruise has been working with the same people over and over again whether it be doug lyman who made edge of tomorrow and then american made or more specifically uh christopher mcquarrie 
who made Jack Reacher and the last two Mission Impossible films. Mm-hmm. Now, you watched Jack Reacher a few nights ago, and I did as well. And man, I love Jack Reacher. Me too. It's a movie that, like, every ad that I saw, I was like, why... What is this? It looks so bland. It looks kind of boring. I mean, I didn't see it until this week because I thought it looked like Tom Cruise. Like a generic action vehicle, right? And also, like, Tom Cruise, like, is ridiculous. Like, I don't buy him as this ass-kicking guy. But the best thing about Jack Reacher is that Christopher McQuarrie understands that Tom Cruise can be really good at what he does. He's also kind of a jackass and lame. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But the movie understands that. I think Tom Cruise's performance in Jack Reacher Mm -hmm. is masterful. It's so good. He is so... He's very subtle in the Mm -hmm. film, actually. Like, he really knows... He uses his own natural charisma and not a lot more. And he knows that, like, less is more, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's also Christopher McQuarrie, who's a director, that is as far as... Tony Scott, as you can get, Mm -hmm. who's very specifically interested in the mechanics of how you tell a story. Yeah, I saw Ignati Vishnevetsky wrote on Letterboxd Mm -hmm. that it's it's the closest an American film has come to a Johnny Toe movie. And I completely agree with that. Like, it's such a simple film. I mean, it's still two hours and change. And I'm sure Christopher McQuarrie, if you talked to him about that, he'd be like, ugh, yeah, I can't believe it's that long. But every, like, building block, even the stuff that's not involving Tom Cruise, like, goes toward a point. And, like, the Jack Reacher character, I've never read the novels. I remember when people announced Tom Cruise in this role, and people had a fit. Because in the books, Jack Reacher is, like, six and a half feet tall. Like, he's an imposing presence. That's the whole idea of the character. And, like, Tom Cruise takes it in, like, a slightly different direction to make it work. And it's such like a genius choice from Cruz and McQuarrie, who also wrote the script. I bought Tom Cruise in the role because he's somewhat unassuming. Mm-hmm. So people underestimate him, but he's also like, just from the look of him, very like solidly built and compact. Like there's, there's no wasted fat on him. And like know? Tom Cruise, especially in Jack Reacher has a face that you just want to punch. But at (laughs) the same time, you want to see him succeed. Like if you look at the climax of that movie, it's Tom Cruise being like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Like this is probably not going to work, but still getting through it by the end. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Chris McQuarrie did the last two Mission Impossible films. And the Mission Impossible series is really interesting when it comes to Tom Cruise performances, Mm -hmm. because it's a series that Tom Cruise actually started himself with his producing partner at the time, uh, Paula Wagner, I believe. And, like, the first go-around, it was Brian De Palma. So he wanted to, like, work with an auteur who would have, like, a vision about yeah. what the film would be. And the first three are all very different from each other. Yeah. John Woo, J.J. Abrams. They all have different ways to approach the Mission Impossible series. And what that means is you get widely divisive ideas of who that Tom Cruise character is. Mm-hmm. And it's only, I think, with, like, Brad Bird's Part 4 entry where you start to get, like an idea of where the character will go in the next three films. I mean, I haven't seen the newest one, but from what everybody has said online, it's just a crystallization of what Chris McQuarrie did in the last film, which is Tom Cruise as a guy who can do all this stuff, but is almost like a Jackie Chan, like a buffoon doing it and who vocalizes that like, uh, I'll figure it out. Like, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I'll get it done. And he'll do it by the skin of his teeth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the last couple of Mission Impossible movies and Jack Reacher are just like very good pieces of like nuts and bolts filmmaking mm-hmm. from editing to yeah. compositions, you know, like so many action movies. I think Marvel movies, for instance, like the action scenes are, you know, like a big jumble. Well, the thing about but, the Marvel action scenes is they often feel like they were created by a previous team, which mm-hmm. is the people who like, oh, okay, this is the action scene. 
here's 20 guys, give me 20 different versions of the scene, I'll take all the best parts and put them together. But the car chase in Jack Reacher oh, just, is just a great piece of visual storytelling. Yes, I mean, Christopher McQuarrie is, I think, one of the big-budget filmmakers that understands how movies are put together and is always approaching them from different angles. If you listen to his commentary on his directorial debut, Way of the Gun, it's a film that he considers a failure, and he actually talks about why it is that way, and that one of the reasons was that he kept trying to approach the film in ways that wouldn't be cliche, mm -hmm. like, oh, I was going to do a trailer at the beginning of the movie where you'd see um, Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Philippi, and they would be losers, and that, like, the trailer would all be cool, but they're losers in the center mm -hmm. of it. And he realized, like, no, like, I can't do that. There's a reason why these cliches exist. So it's all about approaching them from specific angles. And that's why Tom Cruise is the perfect person to do it with. Because Tom Cruise, all in all, is a bit of a cliche at what he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you have someone who understands how to use those and make them in an interesting way that's very pointed, you'll get the ultimate Tom Cruise movies. But at the same time, I got really excited when I heard that Tom Cruise was in talks to be in the new Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, I did too. And I, I wish it had happened. Like, I don't think... Like, hearing that and hearing it fall through makes me think no variation of that will ever happen. Because mm -hmm. that's not what interests Tom Cruise. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy that he's making these Mission Impossible movies. Because mm -hmm. they're fun. I would like, you know, I I do, I guess, lament that uh, we're not going to get more, like, Paul Thomas Anderson or yeah. Stanley Kubrick kind of Tom Cruise movies. There's going to be a point where Tom Cruise can't do stunts anymore, and he's going to have to reinvent himself again to figure out, like... How do I get people to like me? And maybe that will be going back to a dramatic acting. He'll be like Charles Foster Kane in his mansion alone, you know, with his using his e-meter trying to, <laughs> you know, lamenting the loss of his daughter. What will be his like last word on his lips that nobody will understand? Oh, God, who knows? <laughs> it's going to be like Suri. Yeah. I guess we'll never know who Suri is. <laughs> Just a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Wait, I thought it was Tom Cruise's daughter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I guess that's the end of that story. Uh, redo that newsreel. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So the first letter is from Sean Glennis, and he goes, Hi, ICC boys. I just found a podcast today called Supporting Characters, which happened to have a lengthy interview episode with Jonathan Rosenbaum. Besides just recommending it to you, J-Rowhead, some of his comments made me wrestle with something thorny that perhaps you have thoughts, experiences with. Uh, this letter actually came from last week, but I remember it was so long I didn't get to read it. And we uh, sang the praises of uh, supporting characters on the last episode. That's right. I just listened to the William Lustig episode of mm. supporting characters and William Lustig talking about working at Anchor Bay, yeah, Blue Underground. So it's like, you know, as guys like us who, yeah. who buy Blu-rays. Did you listen to the Jonathan Rosenbaum one yet? I, I a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That one's really fun, too, because um, Bill Ackerman, like, knows Jonathan Rosenbaum and wants to, like, approach it from different angles. Yeah, like, yeah. all right, I've heard about your parents. What about this? Yeah. And so the letter continues. As Rosenbaum has said elsewhere, he mentioned that hating art a uniquely American thing. Huh. I actually because, agree with that. Because it is so entangled with class, but that mm. art has been significant to his life. I do feel like art cinema is often resented unfairly, but I also wonder how much that resentment has to do with the enforced taste hierarchies. For instance, one of the toxic enchantments of film Twitter is enforcing taste hierarchy through snark or co-signing other snark. 
That would be me, I think. Even many film writers I admire, and Jay Rowe isn't completely absolved of this, have a tendency to reinforce taste hierarchies by speaking in prescriptive terms of good and bad, rather than speaking to personal taste. I feel like very smart people who one minute can perfectly recognize the subjectivity and socialization of taste easily conflate that with good and bad the next minute. Do you guys have any feelings or experiences with this, and how would you introduce art cinema to people who may be apprehensive because of the sigma with class and taste? Thank Thanks, Sean. So I, I think that, first of all, it can be hard to hear something you like, you know, referred to kind of snarkily or... As uh, bad. Yeah, I, I, I dismissed. That said, I, I also feel like it's kind of a given that all of our opinions are subjective, right? Mm, so yeah. like, if, if I say that I think that I think this movie's shit or something... Yeah, and, and I, you don't start it with, in my personal opinion. Yeah, like, it can be implied that it's my personal opinion. Like, I remember... Just recently on Twitter, I think it was Richard Brody, the critic, uh-huh. there was a big thread because he said something like, I don't like Fred Astaire movies because I don't think they're directed very well. I would rather a Bugsley Berkeley film any day of the week. That is exactly what Twitter is made for. He is only putting that out there to create an argument. To provoke, yeah. Yeah, and to get like people to follow him and not converse, because Twitter is not really about con- conversation. It's about people screaming at each other. Okay, but but I don't know. In a way, that's fine, because like, I don't know. If that's he, fine, because all if I you, have to do is unsubscribe from him, well, and I don't have to read it anymore. But like, aren't all articles about film, aren't all pieces of film criticism, like an attempt to like... Like not all, not all of them are as deliberately provocative as that, mm. but all of them are meant to, I, you know, the le politiques des auteurs. Mm. Like, like just just because it's provocative, just because he said that provocatively, doesn't mean he doesn't actually believe it. I mean, he also genuinely does think other people should believe it. Yeah, I, I think that the only problem, and this kind of comes out of Twitter, is the idea that like the people that are angry at him, and I, I don't have any opinion on that, yeah. are angry because it's said in such a definitive way, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, you didn't consider this or that or like i know more than you right and i my opinion is correct and yours is incorrect so let me yell at you yeah. of why you're incorrect and i mean i'm sure that he has more articulate and uh, yes. more broader reasons for that opinion also and and it can be hard if you love fred astaire movies to see something you love dismissed like that people have told me like just acquaintances i wouldn't say they were friends that like they don't like or believe what i say about movies because they believe I hate everything. And that has come probably from me saying I don't like one thing that they like. Right. Right? So that's like the weird thing, like the emotional reaction that you cuz me the opinion that I hate everything is absurd. Yeah. Like that is crazy. You like more things than I do. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. that. Uh, but also like I think one should have thick skin about this sort of thing because like who cares? I mean, who cares? It's, but at the same time, it hurts your feelings when that stuff well, does yeah, come up. Well, yeah, I mean, people do. You should have thick skin. None of us do. We're yeah. very thin well, skin I, on like, the internet. People, I like, guess, oftentimes do define themselves by things they like. Yes. I'm not exempt from this. Like, it yep. becomes wrapped up in your identity. And uh, uh, oftentimes, I mean, some people will react in a way that's contrarian because it does make them stand out to have this opinion that other people don't sure. hold. I, I do think that point that Rosenbaum raises about, you know, um, uh, Americans hate art because it's it's wrapped up in class. I think there is something to that. I mean, film, what it has from its inception been regarded as a popular medium. Yeah, but hasn't it been considered a popular medium everywhere? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's maybe not that's not necessarily in America. America. Like, uh, the British, like, yeah. that is... 
as classicist, if not more, yeah. than America. I mean, the, that that's very true. But, you know, the idea, because it's a popular medium, mm-hmm. I think that has something to do with why art cinema yeah. is, is regarded by so many with suspicion. Yes, you know? I would agree with that. And I think people are, like, you will often hear somebody say something like, oh, pff, what's the big deal with Citizen Kane? You know, mm-hmm. Citizen Kane, like, like, who cares? But, and they wouldn't necessarily say that about the Mona Lisa. Well, art know? cinema... I think the big stumbling block for people is that in their opinion, it's boring Mm -hmm. because it's not delivering the entertainment that they would get from something that they would pay some money to go see on Friday night that stars the rock. Mm -hmm. And that's where that kind of barrier arises. And that if they're sitting there and they're going, I am bored, that means other people are smarter than me Mm -hmm. or think that they're smarter than me and they get something that I don't get. So I will lash out and react in anger. Actually, I guess, I guess this isn't just unique to cinema now that I think about it because people also feel that way about contemporary art. How is that art? My kid could do that. Right. Exactly. Like it's the same idea there. They feel excluded. And I feel that Jonathan Rosenbaum is like a lot of like, I want to say maverick critics (laughs) in the sense that like, he'll say a lot of stuff where you're like, what are you talking about? Almost as if he is taking like a classist position. He doesn't have a great sense of humor. No, he know? doesn't. Like he, there's a, a bit of a schoolmasterish quality. And Jonathan Rosenbaum is a real like, this is right, this is wrong kind yeah. of guy. And like, while you can go, oh well, I know that's his personal taste. Mm-hmm. He'll present it in a in a very dogmatic fashion, which is like not like, well, I prefer this. It'll be like, this is wrong, and this is why it's wrong. He's a dude that wrote a whole book. That was just about shitting on other Citizen Kane books. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that but, shows what kind yeah. of, you know, where his opinions lie. But I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. I want a critic who well, knows if, what they think. And he's you, got a very consistent worldview. He does. And if you understand that, and like Donaldson Rosenbaum is someone who's able to vocalize why he likes or dislikes things very clearly. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you disagree with him, which I do often then like that's fine as long as you can understand that and like i own every jonathan rosenbaum book i could get my hands on because i like reading his perspective on things even though that i disagree with him a lot more times the problem with twitter is that like again man i sound like a 90 year old grandpa which is like there's just that thought there right so there's just an emotional reaction to that which is like this is bad and it's always been bad. It's like, no, it's not bad. You're wrong. And it's like, and so on and so forth. I think the problem with Twitter, Twitter is these Russian troll farms. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is like a big one where it's like, why or is there some snobbishness around art house cinema? Yeah, there is. And it's basically people are afraid that they're not getting it. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, f- frankly, there are certain cultural gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. I, well, I mean... Is there any cultural gatekeepers yeah, yeah, anymore? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, other than you and me. <laughs> I mean, you know who has the power? Like, like the rich people, big Hollywood yeah. studios have the power. I mean, I mean, if people feel intimidated by art house cinema, you know, rest assured that it takes a very small portion of the marketplace, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there are big corporations who who are making big, big movies that are occupying most people and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, but that said, uh, Cinemascope is a very uninviting magazine. <laughs> yes, it is. And <laughs> I am overjoyed to get every issue, and then I flip through it, read like a few paragraphs, <laughs> go, I have no idea what they're talking about. It's like Homer Simpson with that like Far Side cartoon. He's like, ooh, the Far Side. I don't get it. Well, you mostly have it. no idea what they're talking about because they're talking about a festival movie that won't open for another six years. <laughs> but you know why we get Cinemascope? We've said it dozens of times. Yeah. Oh, flip to that J-Row J- uh, DVD column. And then I go to 
Mark Parenson's con coverage where I get to learn about how terrible it was this year. Mark, Mark, let me go to con instead. <laughs> I'll write a different kind of article than you usually yeah, yeah, write. Yeah. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for the letter, Sean. And our last letter is from Daniel Wasserman, and he goes, Hi, Will and Justin. My question, what are the movies that each of you are desperate to see but have yet to track down? Hmm, oh, that's God. a good question. I have to think about that because I know there are some. Uh, well... We know one that you were like, oh, if I could only see it. And then as if we were Wishmasters after doing our episode about um, Edward's Take It Out or Trade, it then revealed itself the next week. Yeah. Take It Out and Trade by Ed Wood, uh, which is apparently going to get a Blu-ray release later this year, mm-hmm. was definitely one. I'm trying to think of like auteurs or like filmmakers that I love that have movies that I can't see at this moment. Maybe it's a topic we could come back to at another God, point. God, if you talked to me like five years ago, yeah. there would have been there That's been the fun. thing, right? Is that like everything is coming out. I was looking at just what's being released on Blu-ray in like the last few weeks and I'm like, holy shit, like there's going to be a collector's edition of this? Or, you know, aside from that, like online, yeah. you know, you can, f- if you go to the right places, you can find it for anything. So like pretty recently, I was desperate to see this movie that Jonas Mikas had made on the set of The Departed. Jonas Mikas, you know, the great experimental filmmaker who made all these diary films, was invited by Scorsese, you know, for a week onto the set to just mm-hmm. like noodle around. Or, you know, Justin found another one, Bonjour Monsieur Lewis. Yeah, the seven hour uh, doc documentary on um jerry lewis that only aired in france and i'm like will told me about it he's like i've wished to see this since i learned about it and that night i think i messaged you and i'm like got it yeah yeah (laughs) so it's out there if you just look for it like it's unimaginable to me being a teenager and having all of these kung fu films on youtube Mm -hmm. like they're all online like if you're looking for a 70s kung fu film there's going to be 10 copies of it on YouTube. Man, I remember, you know, going to undergrad and, you know, Suspect Video was mm-hmm. downtown and looking, you know, through the old VHSs and being like, oh my God, look at all these Sammo Hung movies I only ever read about. I'm never going to be able to get these. Pantyhose Hero, Pedicab Driver, Millionaire's Express, they're all here. Mm. You know, one film, uh, Ryu Kitamura, the director of Versus, made an hour-long student thesis film that's never been released. So that's one I would like to see. Would I like kill someone to see it? Nah, like hopefully it'll show up on a DVD someday. Like that's uh, like just thinking of movies that I, I like, I have so many movies to watch right now mm-hmm. that like I haven't even seen for the first time. So these like Holy Grails, they're very far away at this point. Oh, oh, I've got one. Um, it happened in Hollywood, the Screw Magazine movie. Uh, uh, it exists online, but only in a French dub. Huh. It was a, uh, it, it's a porn. Yeah. Uh, a Screw Magazine by Al Goldstein. You want me to watch it and make subtitles for you? Uh. <laughs> that, that would be, that would be great. But Wes Craven worked on it wow. as well. Uh, and Peter Locke. You know what? I just made a tweet about this. Barry Sonnefeld directed a dozen movies in the porn world before he shot stuff like uh, the Coen Brothers Blood Simple and Raising Arizona or directing Men in Black. I've never found a list of what those movies are. Mm. I'm fascinated. I'm 100% certain they're just simple, straightforward pornos. But maybe they're not. Like Maybe, maybe there's, there's some like Edgar G. Ulmer style flourishes as he's trying to make a name for himself. I'll never know because I don't know where they are. One day he'll be on the Rialto Report. Please, Barry, <laughs> you just get on the Rialto Report because I would love to see those movies. 
To get that uh, Barry Sonnenfeld auteur touch, <laughs> you know? right. I mean, Barry Sonnenfeld is a visual stylist uh, that is instantly recognizable. Well, he did all the Coen Brothers movies. Yep. He did their cinematography, yeah. And um, he did the classic bad man Kevin Spacey film, Nine Lives. Oh, there's actually one more that I really want to see. Mm. It's John Woo's Laughing Times, which is an early comedy that John Woo made that is a Charlie Chaplin-like fan film, basically. It's like, it has... Maybe it's Dean Sheck or somebody basically playing the little tramp. I have, I'll give it to you. Oh, you do? Okay, great. (laughs) And uh, the letter continues. Also, I was surprised to hear on the podcast that Will had found some paperbacks by Edward Jr. I am so curious about them. I'm very afraid nearly all the pulp trash from the 50s to the 80s will be moldering in a landfill before it ever gets reprinted or scanned. As well as drugstore paperback exploitation novels, I also find film novelizations and photo novelas from the days before VHS fascinating. But I have had a hell of a time getting my hands on more than a very few. Do either of you ever read film novelizations? Some are awful, but for me, some have been revelatory. Uh, I wrote an article about film novelizations once a couple of years ago. You did? Yeah, I talked to Alan Dean Foster. Oh, uh, man, the king of novelization. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've read a few. Uh, I think, you know, the problem with... Alan uh, Dean Foster, fond memories of reading the triple X novelization starring Vin Diesel. Not even kidding. <laughs> uh, I read the Dick Tracy novelization <laughs> as a kid. Uh, but there are some novelizations like Alan Dean Foster's Alien, which I haven't read, but it, it expands on the universe. Or Alan Alien. Dean Foster's Dark Star, which yeah. is like... There's a novelization of yeah. John Carpenter's first feature film? Or the novelization of Taxi Driver, which I have, is written in the first person as Travis Bickle. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, the letter writer mentions that he actually uh, read the novelization for Liquid Sky, mm-hmm. which he said is actually really sad because while it does stick to the movie story, you get the inner life of all these different characters in a very intelligent way. It was actually written by the star of the film, Anne uh, Carlyle. So that's like an interesting way to approach it. And then you get like really weirdo novelizations that are often weird because they're based on the first draft of screenplays. Yes. So you have the famous Jaws 4 novelization where there's like a voodoo element and like Michael Caine's character is a drug runner and the shark was actually like voodooed into attacking um, the family in that movie. Well, I remember the Dick Tracy novelization was like that. It had this whole character, uh, Vitamin, Mm -hmm. what's his name? He was a character in the comics, but he ends up helping to solve the mystery and he's not in the movie but i mean personally uh, i don't know like i haven't kind of chased after novelization that much you know what this made me think of something very specific that i completely forgot about until now i edited and shot a movie called personal space invader and when we released it on dvd i wrote a novelization for the movie (laughs) in a day it's about 60 pages long wow and i wanted to do like that automatic writing thing and i told the whole uh movie from perspectives of side characters so it's their internal monologues i have not read it since the day i wrote it some people who did because i only gave it out on that day said it is very sexual so i feel like i guess my mind went there i i think at that moment i was kind of obsessed with the idea of the weird novelization like why would this have a novelization yeah i mean most novelizations aren't very good because they're just 
transcripts of the movie basically mm-hmm. and who cares yeah right? it, i doesn't really interest me I, I i think they could be good if they expanded on the universe of the film <laughs> you know yeah i don't know if there would be a movie that i'm like ooh, the novelization is completely different i like i would love to read that i'd rather like someone just send me a wikipedia article yeah. of like what the differences are i have a little collection of movie novelizations but mostly just their, their kitsch yeah you know? and i would only be interested if there were like we- really weird ones like taxi driver like that's a weird novelization yeah. like why is there a novelization for that movie there's a novelization of deep throat that i really believe that yeah that's crazy so i hope we didn't like poo poo like the love for novelization i know that's something that's like especially now has been going around a lot like people have become obsessed with it Mm -hmm. but personally that's not something that interests me that much Mm -hmm. so thank you very much for your letter as per usual you can send us a letter at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com this week on our patreon it's a big one I think it actually may be the longest Patreon we've ever recorded. Ah, maybe not, because we did one on DVD special features that was really long. But this is me and Will tackling the auteur theory. What is it? Do we believe in it? The history, Mm. its advantages, its problems. Mm -hmm. We do it all. How it has influenced our own uh, consumption of movies. And you can only listen to that episode by paying $5 a month on Patreon. And not only will you get the Auteur Theory podcast, you will get like 65 plus other episodes and you will get a total of four episodes a month just from subscribing. At this point, it's not a bad deal. No, because you get a lot of stuff. Yeah. And if we get 150 (laughs) people this month... I'm reneging on something that I said before, which is I said that, like, I don't remember when, early in the run, I said if we get this many people by the end of the month, we'll do an episode on Steve Odenkirk's thumb movies. (laughs) We didn't hit that goal. And since then, people have messaged me and been like, oh, if I had only known then, like, I would have given money or I would have subscribed. We're doing it again. This is your chance, yeah. I think we have 139-ish people Uh, As Patreon subscribers, if we get 150 by the end of the month, so that's in a few days, we'll do that thumb movie. If we don't, I will never speak of it again. Okay. Ever. I'm making this promise right now. Okay. So, I mean, yes, it is a podcast that should not exist, like some novelizations. But what will me and Will discover about these movies and ourselves? Uh, Bat thumb, thumb tannic. God thumb. We're going to watch all of them. <laughs> no, we're not. Yeah, we know. We should watch all of them. Okay, we'll Let's watch... Let's go big and go home. Oh, man. If we get 150, we'll watch all of them. <laughs> we're going to die. We'll do a thumb movie marathon, oh, and we'll do a whole episode about it. They're all like three minutes long, so <laughs> yeah. it should be okay. Uh, they're more like 40 minutes long each. All right. But we can do it if we get those Patreon subscribers. So, what are we doing next week, Will? W.C. Fields, Mm. a figure who I think is less beloved than he used to be. I don't think people watch W.C. Fields movies very much. I don't think they do either. But I think uh, there are great gems in the W.C. Fields filmography, and I would like this podcast to act as a way to introduce him to a Mm. new generation. I want to show you why you should love W.C. Fields. Why W.C. Fields is a lovable hateful man perfect for this time and place so watch it's a gift and watch the bank dick the bank dick has some racist stuff in it i'm just warning you right now Mm -hmm. um you know if you folks if you're out there and you want to do some advanced studies look at uh, never give a sucker an even break or a million dollar legs 
But, you know, it's a gift and the bank dick are the key ones. Yeah. And I very much look forward to talking about him because I know Will is a fountain of knowledge of W.C. Fields. I think I've seen the bank dick. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much looking forward to revisiting that. I'm interested in hearing your perspective on him, frankly. I remember finding him very funny. Okay. So I don't think it'll be, um, ugh, I wish I could come and be like, W.C. Fields, too mean. Okay. Classic Marx Brothers. I'm uh, excited for you to see It's a Gift. Okay. It's a Gift, I think, is super funny. <laughs> All right. And as per usual, um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's DeClouj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X. And Letterbox Justin DeClou, one word, same spelling. And Will? I'm a Will Sloan Esquire. That's ESQ. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but I'm also on another podcast now that's not Loose Cannons because Matthew Kumar's in LA now. And uh, it's not as much fun doing a podcast long distance. Yep. Uh, we uh, made sure to <laughs> yeah. get him out of the picture. Wow. You know? I haven't heard of him in a, in a while. I uh, hope he's okay. Yeah. He signed over all of his businesses to me <laughs> shortly before he left. Uh, I'm doing a new podcast with Colin Cunningham and April Itmansky called No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. And the premise of the podcast is we watch two bad movies, in air quotes, every um, episode. One of them is a more conventional kind of like, haha, this is funny bad movie. One of them is the one that I bring to the table, which is some real VHS garbage shot on video, often very challenging. And then we talk about them in the context of what we liked about them. Everybody picked something that we liked and we talk about it from there. I'd like to see you try a really hard one. Uh, we just did Boarding House, the first shot on video movie ever. Man, did I love it. I'm, a, I'm in a place in my life where like, if you had asked me five years ago, like, oh, we're going to do a shot on video marathon. I'd be like, ugh, why? I don't want that. Boring. They can't make movies. Okay. Now I'm like, ah, that personal vision, that misunderstanding of what makes movies. Okay. Shoot it right in my veins. I love shot on video movies. Let me give you uh, a couple of Michael and Us movies and then, no! you, and then you can tell me if you find anything good in them. <laughs> no. <laughs> we don't do documentaries. Okay. Yeah. Or like we're going to watch. But they're like, not real movies. God is not dead. Yeah. Or, or yeah. Bill Maher's last stand up <laughs> yeah. special. And you can I mean, there's a whole podcast out there to tackle that. And that's called Michael and Us. Remember. <laughs> Remember to rate them and review them on iTunes. That's right. <laughs> oh, and uh, important Cinema Club podcast. Rate us and review on, uh, on iTunes. Please do, yes. It'd be very much appreciated. So, until next week, my name's Justin Blue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I took a journey somewhere that I've been meaning to visit whew, for almost five years, I think. And it was a place in the little town of Hamilton. Which a is sexy place? An hour. Nope, it is not. Okay. It's called The Hammer. It's a scary place. It reminds me of Ottawa, like downtown Ottawa. Hamilton, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I used to live. Big white streets, empty. It feels like I'm going to get mugged at every corner. I've been to Hamilton, yeah. 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 And it's an hour bus ride by Go Bus. I went all by my lonesome. And it was to go to a screening night of something called The Hamilton Trash Cinema. So the Hamilton Trash Cinema is something that I heard about right when we were starting Laser Blast Film Society. Because I don't know if I mentioned this before, maybe in passing, but when we were doing Laser Blast at first, the gimmick was we played like weird shot on video-ish movies that we would show actually on VHS. Mm. We stopped doing that because the cables that we would use at the Royal were actually failing, causing the screen to like flicker Mm. and that the projections had to hold it the entire time. But, like, that was our main goal, like, to do something different. And then we learned about a webpage called Hamilton Trash Cinema, which he would post, like, photos of videos that he would get. And what was interesting about this Facebook page is that I would look at it and go, 
I have never heard of that movie. Mm. Like, not even an inkling of it. That excites me when that happens. I mean, I don't know about you. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, well, one thing that I like about the idea of it is, like, that it is this film society. Yes. Uh, you know, I remember, this is a digression, so mm-hmm. we'll get back to this, but I remember I spent a summer in Washington, D.C., and there was this place there, the, the Washington Psychotronic Film Society, mm-hmm. which I think had even been, like, blessed in some way by Michael J. Weldon. Wow. Like, yeah, like, like it, it was somehow an official psychotronic thing, but it was just this, like screening series of you know 10 or 15 people who would gather in a bar and they mm. would project the movie onto the wall of the uh, bar but, love it was, it. but it was like in the back room of the bar yeah. and so you would hear the rest of the bar over yeah. the movie and so you could barely hear the movie but i remember seeing nah, i don't love that as much i don't love that as much either but i don't know i just but it was just this thing that had been there for like 20 years yeah and i remember seeing you know mad mission 3 there <laughs> and uh trouble in mind of all things and uh the, the, trouble in mind yeah the film featuring one of the rare divine not yeah. a drag performances uh, a number of other films that i'm forgetting now but but i i just kind of liked it because it was just this thing that yeah. had existed for forever or trash palace here in toronto yeah like i mean hamilton trash cinema i don't know if it's existed that l- i think it's existed for about five years but i mean like it started from this guy uh ben ruffett just posting photos of the vhs's he would get mm. and i would be like i don't know what these movies are and the thing about this is i couldn't find these movies anywhere Mm. like some of them are just unavailable and so he was doing a screening which he started doing every month he does it at a bar and he does it on the top floor of the bar which used to be a house like a big mansion from one of the mayors of hamilton so there's like a chandelier like a fireplace and it's like really nice and there's all these like antique chairs mixed in with these um just normal bar folding chairs but the thing that like blew my mind was I would see these screenings he would be doing and I'd go, who is coming to this? Like he showed Nick uh, Millard's Dr. Bloodbath, Mm. a film about an abortionist that kills people. And that sounds incredible. And it's a film that there's no tension. There's no suspense. There's nothing. This director made like death nurse. He made a bunch of shot on videos. He also directed pornography. His uh, filmography has like a hundred credits and like he was showing it to an audience and I was like, who goes to this? Like, it must just be the programmer's friends. Because these movies are tough. Tough to the point that I think that people would react like, why would you show this? Yeah. Like, what is there entertaining about it? But then I heard from um, someone I know in Toronto, Connell Pendergast, that he showed one of his films there. The guy, Ben Ruffett, actually reached out to Connell and went, hey, I want to show you a movie, Flesh Freaks. Uh, Flesh Freaks was a movie that Connell shot in like 99 or 98 when he was in high school over five days and it was in the boom of like the pre-zombie era he actually got it distributed by like a a major kind of sub-label so it has like its own cult around it and he went to the screening uh, my friend Connell who uh, directed the movie and he said there was 30 people there Mm. and I was like 30? No! Not bad. To see like that? Flesh Freak? I mean I, I don't believe it and I was like I gotta check it out and I went And it was packed when I went. What was amazing about it was that everybody enjoyed the experience. I wrote an article about this on Film Trap. Mm -hmm. And, like, the feeling that I got is, like, you're watching this movie. It's funny in some conventional ways. Like, it's badly made. It's very repetitive. I think that what I... (laughs) I compared it to Jean Dillman. (laughs) Because, like, it's the same thing over and over again. Until at the end, the character picks up a phone and goes, I'm the murderer. Please come and arrest me. And then the movie ends. And, like, people were, like, hypnotized by it, experiencing it with a group. Something that was never meant to be experienced with a group. It was just meant to be watched by someone tricked by picking up the VHS box. And, like, that was amazing. 
But what was also amazing about it was something that I rarely hear about like cinephiles anymore, which is that he was showing the original objects. He would only play the tapes that were originally released. So that from the 90s, the 80s, all these films often distributed directly from uh, the directors themselves. And that blew my mind. I'm like, why don't you just find like a YouTube link and play it? He's like, no, like I made a promise to myself, this audience of 30 people, I'm going to show them these movies. I love that. Talking to him and like that he collects VHS. The one question on my mind was like, is there any Holy Grails that like you've always wanted? And he mentioned a bunch of titles and I went, oh yeah, that's really interesting. On the back of my mind, I was like, I could probably like find those somewhere. Mm -hmm. Nope. They don't exist anywhere so like this guy has movies in his collection that don't exist he may have the only copy of these movies you told me that he has a copy of doris wishman's Mm -hmm. um original version of a night to dismember i'm not even kidding which is a movie that like doesn't isn't supposed to exist yeah yeah and he reached out to the cinematographer of the movie because this is how the programmer the hamilton trash cinema does it he reaches out to the filmmakers, the filmmakers' families, asking for tapes and stuff like that. And he just asked for a VHS copy of A Night to Dismember, which is supposedly very rare. And the uh, cinematographer, and I believe the cinematographer's son afterwards, because the cinematographer passed away, sent him like a copy of the original version before he came on to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Which, when he told me this, I was baffled because I'm like, well... Like, we did a Doris Wishman episode. We mentioned it as well. That's not supposed to exist. It's supposed to be lost. It, it's like, supposed burned to be lo- up in a... Yeah, in a fire. And, and the version of A Night to Dismember that we have is a totally different movie. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, you have this? He's like, yep. I think... He said, I think me and maybe one other person have it in the world. And he's like, I'll probably throw it up on YouTube at some point. Please do. But it was like, the way he talked about it, it like didn't feel like that big a deal to him. Like he was obsessed with these things and he shows them to this audience of 30 people or sometimes probably more, sometimes probably less. He even said like, I don't think the people realize what they were seeing. And I'm like, no, I can guarantee you they had no idea. Like you walk out and you go, oh, this movie was supposed to be lost in a fire. I have the only copy you're watching it now. And then he plays it like they're like, oh, yeah, it's a movie. There's a podcast out there that's dedicated just to A Night to Dismember. I just came across it. They go minute by minute. And like, I'm probably certain that he doesn't even know that that copy of that movie exists out there. Wow. Like, and that's one of the amazing things is in the episode, we talked about Holy Grails and the idea of like, everything's available. It's like, it's not. He talked about this movie called Graveyard Rot where it was made by a heavy metal band in the early 90s. And the cover is like the heavy metal band around like a gravestone. And there's a really fun t- uh, tagline on it. And I was like, what's it about? And he's like, I have no idea, but man, it looks fun. And I looked for it on the internet afterwards. It doesn't have an IMDb page. I only found one photo from it, from the eBay listing that the guy at Hamilton Trash Cinema said he missed out on by a few dollars. Mm. And that's it. That's the only existence in this world of that movie. And like, thank God for people like uh, Ben Ruffett that like he's keeping that alive. God, I hope he doesn't die and somebody just throws <laughs> everything out. I said, do you have a big collection? I mean, he's young. He's our age. Okay. I said like, do you have a big collection of like movies? He's like, I don't have that many. I have like 300, 400. <laughs> and I'm like, 300, 400. But like, those are like the deepest of cuts that he keeps. Yeah. Like I went, you can go to the Hamilton Trash Cinema Facebook group and I highly recommend it. Just flip through the photos and, like, some of them, I was like, ooh, what's that? 
no IMDb page, no trace of them. Like, Ben has a copy of these and nobody else does. Wow. Justin, will you go with me sometime? <laughs> I guarantee I will go with you to the Hamilton Trash Cinema. And I hope that anybody in Toronto who's listening to this will go as well. Because, right. like, you're not going to get that anywhere else, which is rare as a cinephile. 